Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today, we're pleased to present TVO's first ever podcast crossover event. John Michael McGrath and Steve Pakin from the On Poly podcast are here. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is just like the Avengers, but much nerdier. For this episode, we're discussing Peter Raymond's 1978 political doc, The Art of the Possible. The film is a behind-the-scenes look at the Bill Davis government. Davis was Premier of Ontario and leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. He belonged to a political dynasty that governed the province for over 40 years and is considered one of Canada's most important premiers, not to mention a personal hero of one Steve Pakin. This documentary, when it came out in 1978, absolutely blew the roof off the place because people couldn't believe that, uh, you know, that Mr. Davis, who, who ran, you know, a relatively secretive government, right? I mean, there was no access to information law at this point yet either. Uh, you know, it, it was just a completely different view about government. You could not believe the access we were getting to things that no other government previously has allowed. So that's why it was groundbreaking. In our conversation, Steve and John Michael discussed Davis's legacy, how the film deals with the nuts and bolts of policymaking, and most importantly of all, who should have played Bill Davis in a biopic? The answer will surprise you. Stay with us. So Steve Pakin and John Michael McGrath, thank you for joining us on On Docs. Hi, Colin. Happy to be here. This is our first crossover episode. That sounds kind of kinky. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you have to think of it like the Jetsons meet the Flintstones. <laughs> Which ones are we? <laughs> That's a good question. I uh, call Jetsons. <laughs> you're, you're, you're the future forward looking one. <laughs> All right. Well, let's 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 talk about the art of the possible. And Steve, I'm going to start with you because you actually chose this doc. So tell us why you chose this one to talk about. I love this documentary because it probably was the first one of its kind in Canada. It was made by the National Film Board, gosh, 42 years ago, I think. And it really peeled back the curtain on what was up to that time a very sphinx-like, very, very um, hard to get a grasp of government of Bill Davis's. Uh, just for your listeners uh, who who will not know Mr. Davis, uh, he became Premier of Ontario at the age of 41 in 1971. And, uh, you know, he was the second longest serving Premier of all time in Ontario, ended up serving 14 years. And he was, you know, as as time goes by, he was a guy who clearly had a great deal of ability and, and I would almost say a unique ability uh, to bring people together to increase the social cohesion to to manage to build bridges between different and disparate parts of society. He was just, uh, to the extent he had genius, it was finding the sweet spot of competing interests in society and making decisions that have stood up to this day. And this documentary, uh, and I don't know how, but it managed to really go behind the scenes and get into meetings that no cameras had ever been in, uh, private meetings between Mr. Davis and his secretary to cabinet, private meetings with the minister of finance, then called treasurer on the way into... Uh, making an Ontario budget. Uh, it, it was all just great behind-the-scenes stuff that we'd never seen before. For seven weeks in early 1978, we were given access to film these people and this process centered at Queen's Park, 
the Ontario Legislative Building in downtown Toronto. I want to talk about Bill Davis a bit more later, but John Michael, I'll ask you because we're the same age. Did you watch this doc growing up? I feel like it must have been in one of my high school classes or something like that, because it is a movie that I have, I think, always known about. But until a few years ago, I, you know, I could have told you like, yeah, I think I remember watching that someday. But uh, it was only a few years ago that I actually, you know, as a you know, <laughs> semi-professional Queens Park reporter uh, actually sat down and watched it again, uh, as I did this week. And, uh, you know, it, it, it does have a very different uh, feeling to it once you understand uh, the, the mechanics and the machinery of Queens Park. It, 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 it stops feeling a bit like the um, school film strip and, and is, <laughs> is a, a bit more uh, engaging that way. John Michael, uh, you've been covering Queens Park for a while, so I wonder just how much access you think uh, governments have given to, uh, well, you're a journalist, so I'll ask you how much <laughs> access they've given to journalists. Uh, are they, are they uh, more transparent or are they less transparent than they used to be? Well, you know, it, it, it is different from government to government. I think this... Uh, Current oh sometimes it's even different within the same tenure of government. I, I think the Doug Ford government has become. I, I don't know if they've become more transparent, but they have definitely become uh, less antagonistic to the press than they were uh, from uh, very early on in their uh, time in government. Um, I, I don't think they have been as open and transparent as the liberals before them. So there's definitely uh, differences. I suspect that the next election might see that pendulum swing again. Um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, in the context of, you know, looking back on this this documentary from the 1970s, the mystique around Queen's Park, the sense that, you know, the, the public was watching maybe um, the mysteries of a temple <laughs> that they didn't really necessarily get to understand or fully engage in. Um, I think this documentary really does um, illuminate some of what was happening behind closed doors that I think, you know, the public might have a better idea now of what is happening. Uh, and, and I think of, you know, when things go badly, uh, you know, the premier's chief of staff, for example, is uh, the kind of name that people start to learn very quickly, uh, as uh, Premier Doug Ford learned last year. Can I jump in on that, Colin? Yeah, of course. We, we've got to put this in time, right? We've got to put this in a place and a time. You're talking about 1978 here. There's no all news channels. The premier did not give a news conference every day. He was not available every day. In fact, some weeks he was barely available. Uh, to be interviewed, uh, you know, there it, it was. Comp there's no social media. There's no nothing, and there's no email. I mean, uh, there's no television in the legislature. You have to understand that that this documentary, when it came out in 1978, absolutely blew the roof off the place because people couldn't believe that, uh, you know, that Mr. Davis, who who ran, you know, a relatively secretive government, right? I mean, there was no access to information law at this point yet either. Uh, you know, it, it was just a completely different view about government. Uh, I'm not saying he was overly secret. He was typically secretive of the time. Uh, there was just mm -hmm. a different view about how much information the public ought to know or needed to know or whatever. And, and that's why this documentary had such an impact is that you could not believe the access we were getting to things that no other government previously has allowed. So that's why it was groundbreaking. 
And if I could just add, I mean, this is also 78. Uh, Steve may have the exact dates uh, <laughs> memorized, but this is only a few years, I think, after MPPs even started getting proper salaries. Uh, the, the changing uh, nature of Queen's Park itself was that you were starting to see, uh, certainly as uh, the NDP became a stronger force in provincial politics, uh, you were starting to see a very different composition of Queen's Park. And it wasn't um, <laughs> the the men of the Orange Order versus the men <laughs> of the Empire Club uh, with their buddies, uh, you know, alternating between golf and bank right it, it, this it, it was starting to reflect uh the public i think much more uh, at queen's park and I, i'm not sure that this documentary necessarily captures all of that but it was it was definitely part of what was going on well never mind salaries they didn't have offices they didn't have offices right. they didn't have secretaries they didn't have phones I mean, they all used to, there was one communal phone to use in the government caucus room, and they used to go in there and line up to use it. I mean, you, this is what I'm saying. It's a very different time, guys, and that's, that's something your listeners really have to better understand. Well, yeah, let's go back a bit, because, yeah, this is 1978 when the film comes out, and I think the footage was shot around the same year. So just tell us a bit about that, that time and place. What was Ontario? What was its situation uh, economically and politically speak, and politically? Well, economically, it, it was okay at the time. Uh, we, were, we would be, I guess, a few years away still from uh, what was at that point the uh, recession of the early 1980s, which was the worst recession since the Great Depression at that point. The Conservatives face several problems. The Ontario economy is faltering. Inflation is at 8%. Unemployment is the highest since the war. And in the last two elections, the Tories have been returned with a minority government. At the mercy of the Liberal and NDP opposition, any time it combines to defeat them. But the, the film essentially tells the story of the lead up to the budget from that year. And the uh, treasurer, which is what we call the Minister of Finance back then, the treasurer was a guy by the name of Darcy McHugh, who's still around. I think he's 87 years old. And Bill Davis is still around, and he's 90 years old. And essentially the film follows these two guys as they you know, march their way through all of the pre-budget consultations and the meetings that have to take place and all of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And Ontario is, look, it, it, Bill Davis is in the midst of his second minority government. He got a majority in 71, then he almost lost the whole thing in 75, but held on with a bare minority. He went to the polls again in 77, uh, thinking that he was going to be able to reclaim the majority. He didn't. So he's in his second minority government. Uh, and, um, and from what I'm told, this was, in some respects, the golden age of democracy in the province of Ontario. Mr. Davis, after he failed to reclaim the brass ring in 1977, he basically made a decision. And he said, you know, we're not going to have any more, uh, you know, cutesy stuff on the floor of the legislature where, you know, the, the reason we had the election only two years in after the 75 election is that he thought he could reclaim the majority. So he orchestrated the demise of his own government on the floor, lost a vote on purpose. Oops, we got to go have an election. And he didn't win. I mean, he, he won a minority, but he didn't win the majority. So he said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to serve the whole four-year term. And, you know, if the opposition wants to bring us down, that's their business. But I'm not going to do any monkey business. We're going to serve the whole four years. And it was probably the most collegial consultative government we ever had in Ontario. And by that, I mean, I have heard stories about how Bill Davis used to take a bill to the leader of the opposition, Stuart Smith's office for the liberals and say, look, if you can give me this, this and this, I can do this, that and the other thing for you. 
And then he'd go over and see Stephen Lewis, the leader of the uh, NDP, and he'd say, you know, same deal. Can you can you support me on this and I can help you with that? And and that's how they did it. And they made a lot of decisions very collegially. And then, of course, in 1981, he called the election after four years. He won a majority, and that was the end of that. <laughs> they went back to, uh, you know, what majority governments do, which is essentially hoard all the power and make all the decisions themselves. But for that four-year period, and this documentary is sat, sits right in the middle of it, it was really a very cool and different time. Someone in the film even says that Davis uh, has a pretty – he has a sense of the civil service that's, like, excellent. And, like, he knows more than – like some ministers about their own departments. Do premiers often have that type of, uh, are they that well versed in, in the, the machinations of, of, the, of government, of, of civil service, the way he well, was? Well, I, I have only been able to watch two premiers up close. That's Kathleen Wynne and Doug Ford. So um, I, I can't proclaim to have uh, you know detailed knowledge of this. But my, my understanding is that uh, Bill Davis's skill is it might, might not have been unique, but it was rare. Uh, certainly, you know, I think the the skill of any cabinet uh, at Queen's Park is not um, <laughs> it's not normally distributed. The uh, there are certainly ministers who know their files backwards and forwards, and and they are on their ministries like a hawk. And if something isn't getting done, they are constantly you know badgering the civil service to know why isn't this thing happening. And then there are ministers who, um, how to put this, they 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 have their jobs because the premier needed uh, regional representation, or they needed they owed somebody a favor. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is just the reality. Of politics, right? And those people sometimes they surprise us, but uh, often they are uh, not the star performers in a cabinet. And uh, so it, it would not surprise me if, for example, Kathleen Wynne uh, had uh, very, very good uh, intelligence on what was going on in at least the very key ministries for her, right? If 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 Kathleen Wynne had ever been surprised about what was going on in the education ministry, I would be very surprised. Can I take a kick at that one too, Colin? Because that, that education is a good point. Kathleen Wynne and Bill Davis have a lot in common in as much as they were both very successful ministers of education for a long time before they became premier. So they had a, a great understanding of the necessities of that portfolio. And of course, when you're the minister of education, you know a lot about money because it's one of the biggest spending ministries. Uh, they can both take a backseat to Leslie Frost, who was the premier in the 1950s. <laughs> And who was who was premier and, and his own treasurer, his own minister of finance at the same time as well. And I have heard stories about times when Leslie Frost used to get up and answer every single question in question period, which is quite a bit different from the way Doug Ford does it, where, you know, he as he as is his right, but he delegates a lot of questions in question period off to other ministers. Leslie Frost used to answer them all himself from time to time. Bill Davis loved question period and would answer many of the questions uh, meant for other ministers himself as well because he had such wit and he was, he was so good at it and, um, and he enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, but, but being a minister for, I think Davis was minister of education for eight or nine years before he became premier and all of that lead up meant that he certainly had a better understanding of many portfolios in government far more than any of the ministers who had those portfolios would have. Do you think one style of leadership is, I guess, more effective than another? Is it better to be a premier who has such a grasp on all different types of different portfolios, or do you think it's better to be able to delegate to other ministers? Well, what's the expression in French? Chacun son goût. I mean, each to his own. <laughs> um, John Robarts was called the chairman of the board because not not because he knew every single figure or detail in the budget, uh, but because he set a tone and he 
you know, conveyed a style of leadership and he let ministers run their own portfolios. Um, you know, he wasn't uh, getting into the minutiae of every little thing. Uh, you know, they used to say about Jimmy Carter that from time to time he used to stick his nose into who was who was uh, making appointments on the tennis courts at the at the White House, which you'd think that the, the president really ought not to be paying attention to. So, you know, mm. it's it's whatever works for that particular personality and temperament of the person who holds that chair. I thought Frank Sinatra was chairman of the board. <laughs> well, there's a bunch of them. John Robarts was the chairman of the board and Frank was the chairman of the board. And there was a basketball player named Moses Malone who was called the chairman of the boards, plural, because he was uh, such a force at the rim, which John Michael would know all about because he's such a big sports fan. I, I am, of course, such a huge sports fan. Uh, uh, but I would say to uh, Colin's question, you know, it also depends on what uh, challenges uh, any government is asked to face. Uh, you know, I think... Kathleen Wynne's style of, uh, you know, very uh, detail oriented. Uh, she's, you know, the policies wonk, policy wonk. Um, that served her reasonably well. You know, there was, I think if I were, if I think about it, there might have been a single occasion where I asked Kathleen Wynne a question about policy that she couldn't answer with you know, that information right at her fingertips, um, notwithstanding how her uh, government ended, you know, she did lead a, a, a province, you know, reasonably effectively uh, for five years. Uh, Doug Ford, very uh, different leadership style. Uh, <laughs> definitely, I think, gave him a rocky year in, in 2019. And uh, I, I saw some odd parallels between 2019 and uh, some of what we saw in this documentary. But um, Doug Ford also has uh, applied his leadership style to the current pandemic uh, in a way that I think has surprised a lot of people. Mm. Well, we're going to turn to the doc for for a minute. And we see the Bill Davis and his uh, meetings with uh, other premiers, uh, with Prime Minister uh, Pierre Trudeau. And Steve, just tell us a bit about Ontario's position back in the 70s. When Bill Davis took over as Prime Minister of Ontario, as the job was then called, yes, Prime Minister of Ontario, he changed the title to Premier. When he took over in 1971, uh, he got some very good advice from John Robarts, his predecessor. And Mr. Robarts said, uh, Billy, he was one of the very few people who could call him Billy. He said, Billy, Canada works well when on the big issues of the day, the Prime Minister of Canada and the Prime Minister of Ontario, and he put his fists together as if to say, are, are really in lockstep with each other. He said, you can beat them up on transfer payments, you can beat them up on other little policies, but essentially on the big stuff, the Prime Minister and the Premier have got to be together. Because if they're not, it's just too injurious to national unity. you got to remember back then, unlike today, Ontario really was um, the, the economic and social powerhouse of the country. Ontario, Canada's richest and most populous province. Industrial heartland of the nation, with an economy bigger than Australia's, bigger than Sweden's, bigger in fact than that of most of the world's states. In Ontario, there are more millionaires than in Paris, and you can watch more television stations here than any other place on the planet. We've always had about uh, 35 to 40 percent of the population of the country, uh, but back then it was a really rich province compared to everybody else. Certainly not the case today. Um, so, like, Bill Davis was an important guy. Uh, he certainly was the second most important politician in the country behind the prime minister. There was no question about that. 
um, at various times since then. You could argue that the Premier of Ontario, you know, sometimes is, but sometimes isn't the second most important um, politician in the country. Uh, but he certainly was back then. And it's, it's interesting that even though they were in different parties and had nothing in common, I mean, think about it. Pierre Trudeau, French, elegant, uh, Jesuit, <laughs> educated, uh, intellectual, brilliant, um, you know, uh, independently wealthy. Uh, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, single till he was uh, 50 years old. Uh, and then, you know, I guess playboy at one point of his life. Ah, playboy is maybe a bit too harsh, but certainly, you know. Uh, hey, he dated Streisand. Uh, he dated Streisand <laughs> and Margot Kidder and, you know, he, he, Leona Boyd. He was famous for the girlfriends he had. He was, he was a single man, you know, when he got into public life. Um, Bill Davis, uh, very differently, uh, married his university sweetheart. She died tragically from bad health. He remarried another woman to whom he's been married now to for 50, 55 years, Kathy Davis, who has been, in my view, the, the secret to his success. Uh, she inherited four of his kids from his first marriage, and then they had a fifth. So you can imagine what that must have been like for them. Uh, Bill Davis being a widower in his early 30s and, and trying to embark on a political career while suddenly finding himself a single father um, and a widower with these four little kids, all of whom were under the age of seven. I mean, very different. Uh, educated in public schools. Uh, his father was not, uh, you know, a rich guy like Pierre Trudeau's father was. He was a crown attorney in Brampton in Peel region or Peel County, I guess, as they called it then. Anyway, these guys had nothing in common. And yet uh, they really came together in the biggest of moments, uh, none more so than in the 1980s to uh, repatriate the Constitution with a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And that is, frankly, the crowning glory of both of their careers. So, yeah, that's that's the big that's the. That's the big Bill Davis story. John Michael, a big part of this film is the creation or drafting of a budget. And they're, they're in a minority uh, parliament situation. So I, I wonder how a government approaches budget making when it has a minority instead of a, a, a majority. Well, the short version is it depends on whether you are trying to uh, win or lose, uh, because you know, as Steve mentioned, you know, governments have been willing to engineer their own defeat from time to time, and if that's the if that's the goal at the end, uh, you know, I think most of the time governments are hoping that they can kick the can down the road uh, a, a little bit further if they can avoid an election they would prefer to do that but it's you know do we get what we want out of the budget or do we have to make so many compromises to the opposition that uh we just can't stomach it and the you know any government whether it is you know liberal tory or new democrat uh i guess we never had a new democrat minority yet but uh they, they would have to make those kinds of decisions and so you know i think of in 2014 for example uh, the win government was uh, at that point i guess in year uh, three of a liberal minority uh, with win having uh, recently succeeded dalton mcginty uh, dalton mcginty had had uh, some say minor explosions with the NDP uh, where they, they felt that the NDP had gone back on uh, a commitment to support uh, the, the liberal budget. Kathleen Wynne had gotten one year of support from uh, the NDP and in 2014 they had to make a decision. You know, do they... Uh, you know, bend over to get uh, NDP support, or do they uh, go to the hustings? Uh, as it turned out, uh, the NDP 
largely made that decision for them by saying that uh, you know th- there was just nothing in the budget that they could support, and uh, so we were off to an election. But you know it wouldn't be impossible to imagine that a you know a government that maybe had uh, built better bridges or or had. Uh, um, you know, was was more uh, insistent on you know getting another year or another two years uh, into a mandate. Uh, you know, could have worked something out. It, it depends on really what their priority is. It's been forty two years since this film came out. A lot of changes in the province. Obviously, it, the government doesn't look well. <laughs> I, I I couldn't help but notice that the composition of the, everyone in the film is is white male and. Um, <laughs> That's changed a little bit since then. Um, but other than that, I mean, what do you think are the, I guess, the big changes in terms of uh, that era of politics compared to what, we, what, we, what we're dealing with now? Well, I'll chime in on that, Colin. I think they liked each other a lot more back then. And, um, you know, it's partly because they were different and it's partly because of the times in which we live. We live in increasingly partisan times. Uh, you know, pandemic aside, everybody's getting along right now. But but in the main, look, I mean, just look south of the border. We have toxic politics, the likes of which we haven't seen in 100 years, 100, maybe 150 years in the United States. Um, back then, there was an understanding that everybody got elected to go to Queen's Park from their respective constituencies to do a job. And, and for many of them, this was not their full-time job. Remember, this is before the era. We were talking about this earlier. This is before the era of, quote unquote, the professional politician. A lot of these people got elected, um, but they were farmers in their regular life, or they ran a pharmacy, or they ran a small business, or they were lawyers. And if you weren't in cabinet, you tended to keep your job and do your job. And the legislator, the legislature sat a lot less, which meant that you went to Queen's Park when necessary to do this job. But in the main, you stayed in your constituency, you kept your ear to the ground, you served your constituents. But you, you did your main job for a living. This was very much a part-time job back then. And, and there wasn't the kind of toxicity or hatred for one another. People understood that they all got there to sort of interpret the public's mandate for them to do their job in their own way. But of course, during minority government years in particular, which is when this film is situated, uh, they had to get along from time to time. And they did for four straight years. There were no confidence votes for four straight years. And as a result... Um, You know, you could argue, I don't want to sound like one of those people who says it was always better in the old days, but you could argue in this case, it kind of was better. Uh, They liked each other more. They respected each other more. They went out for beers at the end of the day uh, among different parties. Uh, It's a far cry from the times when, when, and I've heard this story from numerous people, you know, nowadays, sometimes you're afraid to be seen out socializing with members of a different political party because people think you're a traitor if you do so. I mean, how appalling is that? So, why did it get so partisan and why did it get so polarized? Oh, that's such a tough question. I mean, you can, you know, me, certainly uh, high stakes and media increased it all. Um, social media has made it even worse. Um, John Robarts, you know, again, Bill Davis's predecessor, uh, told the public servants of the day, when the opposition members come to you for information, give it to them. Because if they can ask better questions during question period, they'll make our ministers better and we'll be getting better policy as a result of all of it. He understood it was the whole mix that made things work in Ontario. There wasn't the polarity. And, um, you know, I don't know that you necessarily have that today. In fact, I'm quite sure that, that and I, I'm not going to cast any aspersions on any government in particular, but to be sure, there have been governments 
um, where if opposition members went to the public service and said, can I get that information? Somebody would say, look, I'll get fired if I give that to you. So sorry, but no, it's a different time. Yeah. What do you think, John Michael? I mean, you asked about uh, what is uh, different and, um, uh, you know, I would co-sign a lot of what Steve's saying, but maybe the thing that struck me about this uh, documentary on however many rewatches this is now is there are parts to it that are still very contemporary that, you know, the whole structure of, of building that budget. And, you know, I hope people do watch it, but, you know, spoiler alert, you know, they are still in the, 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 the final stages of drafting a budget and they are still looking for the somewhat gimmicky small bobble that they can throw into the budget speech so that it appears like they are doing more on the environmental file than, uh, they would without it and that you know this is literally something that gets added in like the the night before the speech is supposed to go to the printers and you know that is the kind of thing that still happens in budgets uh not too many years ago the government of ontario presented a budget where a key element of the budget was uh, handed out in uh loose leaf paper separately from the printed budget because it got added after the process so you know these things happen and it's um while very very many things uh, are different uh you know from the the ontario political world that is portrayed in this documentary uh, there are definitely still echoes of it that uh, i thought were very familiar do you guys think this is a film that could be shown to high school students and they would get a, I guess, a better appreciation of how politics works? Or should we just show them episodes of The West Wing? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, <laughs> the West Wing is, um, look at that's that, the West Wing is a rock and roll version of how politics really works. OK, <laughs> uh, it's not the real thing, but it's highly entertaining. What you saw in this documentary, The Art of the Possible, is the real thing. Uh, the, you know, the, the, nobody had lines written for them. This was, this was the way it happened. And it's not all, you know, in, incredibly sexy and exciting and glorious. And a lot of it's going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And a lot of it's behind closed doors, behind the scenes, negotiating and arm twisting. But that's, you know, that's real politics. And uh, I'm glad we've got this documentary to, to watch. And I'm glad... I'm glad um, Mr. Davis and Ed Stewart, who was his deputy minister and a very fine, uh, very fine man and, and really good at his job. And you'll see this in the documentary, how well the two of them work together. Boy, they were those two were pros. They were so good together. Um, but, you know, that, that what we saw is the real thing. And we should not confuse drama for reality in this case. I definitely agree with that. And if the choice is between uh, this documentary and The West Wing, I would say very much this documentary. Um, but I, I did find myself, and, and every time I've watched it, I, I, I remember again that, it, like the end, the ending sort of lands with a, a, a clunk because you get to the presentation of the budget, and then there is this very sort of hasty narration of the fallout from the budget, which, mm -hmm. as a Queen's Park reporter, is is like actually the drama because there's, you know, uh, the opposition parties in a minority don't want to support the budget, and then the government has to negotiate with them and eventually backs down on this, uh, uh, you know, effectively what is a tax increase. And not too long after, the, the finance minister uh, resigns. And... Uh, that's all real drama and it gets handled in the last 
90 seconds of the movie uh, in, in the form of a narration. It was a budget speech that would come back to haunt McHugh and Davis over the next few months. The opposition parties, backed by a major public outcry, combined their attack on the OHIP fee hike, and the province was brought to the brink of an election. Mr. Speaker, that will produce new premium levels. McHugh and Davis were forced to back down, and the OHIP fee hike was cut in half. Five months later, frustrated by the continual compromises of minority government, McHugh resigned from politics after 15 years as a member of the legislature. It doesn't, I think, take away too much from the, the documentary, but uh, every time I watch it, I, I, I do find myself thinking like, no, no, wait, that's the, that's the good part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they should do a, a, a film adaptation. Who should Bill, play Bill Davis? You know, I wrote a book about Bill Davis a few years ago, and I did ask around if they ever put this book into a movie, who should play him? And William Hurt's name kept coming up because they sort of had a physical resemblance to one another back in the day. Um, So I I don't know. That's the first name that popped into my head. Body heat era, William Hurt. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think maybe the (laughs) that's the wrong analogy. But otherwise, yes. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, guys. This was fun. Appreciate it. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Colin. And that's the podcast. Thanks to John Michael McGrath and Steve Pakin for joining me today. Maybe they'll ask me to come on their podcast next time. Just saying. You can catch The Art of the Possible on the National Film Board of Canada's website at nfb.ca and on the TVO Docs YouTube channel. This is our last episode of the season, and I want to thank all of our guests, Suresh Doss, Alan Zweig, Liz Marshall, Paul Markell, Martin Himmel, Mike Mitchell, Allie Weinstein, Natalie Babeau, Tim Caulfield, Nam Kiwanuka, Alex West, John Michael McGrath, and Steve Pakin for being part of an amazing season. Please remember to stay subscribed to this feed. Future episodes will be back in the fall. Special thanks to Chris Beaver for his help this year. And a special shout out goes to the team here at TVO who put this podcast together, especially Matthew O'Mara for producing and editing every episode. Couldn't do it without you, buddy. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. You can write to us at ondocs at tvo.org and you can follow me on Twitter at colinellis81. This podcast was produced by Matthew O'Mara and me. Production support coordinators are Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor, and our executive producer for digital is Kathy Bay. We'll catch you at the next screening.